There are those who want to write the great American novel. There are those of us who are here writing extensive family memoirs, and even some of us who are working on several projects at a time. But what this Elevens is, is going to ask is, what about the small stuff? The poem, the essay, the anecdote, the short story, the joke, the monologue. What about the magic and all things tiny, delightful, and even trivial? And how are we to experiment with paring down, cutting out, fine-tuning, and lobbing off in order to illuminate the fragments with which we form a life? One small example of a tiny form that I was thinking of for this intro are Japanese death poems, which, while not seeming trivial, have the element of pleasure and wonder that small writing often does because of their condensed nature. These traditional haiku were written in one's final moments of life on one's deathbed and often even revised if the person didn't die when they thought they would. <laughs> often they're as dark and as beautiful as you might imagine, for example, Basho's on a journey ill, my dream goes wandering over withered fields. But often also they become funny, ironic, joyful, and frustrated because of the beauty, humility, and absurdness of saying one's last words in three very, very small lines. So you get poems like, farewell, I pass as all things do, do on the grass. Or, my companion in the skies of death, a cuckoo. So to further aid in your quest for the gorgeous miniature in life and in writing, we welcome David Bouchier, who's written many hundreds of short radio essays, newspaper columns, musical introductions, event speeches, and other short pieces. For 10 years, he wrote a weekly humor column in the Sunday New York Times, and his most recent books are The Song of Suburbia, The Cats in the Water Bottles, and Writer at Work, Reflections on the Art of Business Writing. So please welcome David Bouchier. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, or good morning, I should say. I'm ahead of myself. Thanks for coming this morning. Um, Let's see what Carol was just saying about uh, last words reminded me of Voltaire, who, uh, when he was on his deathbed, was asked to renounce the devil. And uh, he was an atheist, of course, and he said, uh, this is no time to be making new enemies. <laughs> uh, it's ironic and slightly embarrassing that in the uh, nice purple sheet you got describing these uh, events are the Elevenses series for this week. The description of this event, which is by far the uh, longest, is actually about brevity. Um, the shortest description is the one for Monday, Marcos Valancho, who gets his description down in a line and a half. So I think if you want to know about brevity, you should probably go and talk to Marcos, and uh, I should probably go back to... Uh, my room and take, take a nap. Um, but since we're here, since we're here, um, we may as well talk a little bit about this. And uh, uh, that's what I'll try to do as briefly as I can. The trouble with writers is that we're in love with words, uh, just as other people, not writers obviously, are in love with money. And we can never have enough of them. 
You know, words, unlike money, just multiply by themselves. And so we're very rich. Um, it's rather like the story of the tribe that I think Mark Twain tells, the tribe that had its currency in seashells, very rare seashells. And some people managed to accumulate a lot of seashells and some people didn't have very many. In other words, they had class divisions, they had conflict. And the wise leader of the tribe declared that henceforth seashells would be worthless and currency would be in leaves. Well, since they lived in the jungle, everybody became immensely rich very, very quickly. Uh, but of course, they immediately suffered from serious inflation as well. So that's exactly the situation that writers are in. We have an inflation problem, and that's what I want to talk about. It's both an inflation problem and I think an ego problem. Two things very closely connected. Those of us who write on the small scale, essays, columns, commentaries, short stories, poems, and so on, are constantly haunted by this notion that we should be doing something more serious or something bigger, which tends to amount to the same thing. I find that kind friends suggested all the time uh, the underlying message is, why are you wasting your time on this trivial small stuff? Why don't you get serious? And this could be really annoying, especially if you like the trivial small stuff and you don't have any ambitions or maybe any ideas or talent or time uh, to write at great length or great depth. And yet somehow, no matter how you try to shake it off, the criticism strikes home because big seems more important than small, always. You can say so much in a massive novel or an epic poem or a long intellectual essay of 11,000 words. And that's true, of course. And two questions come up right away. Question number one is, how much do you really have to say? And question number two is, how many words do you really need to say it? What can you possibly say in just a few words, people ask? Well, it's poets who know about this. And I'm sure you know this one from Philip Larkin. I'm only going to quote one poem today, don't worry. The little lives of earth and form of eating food and keeping warm are not like ours, and yet a kinship lingers nonetheless. We hanker for the homeliness of den and hole and set. And this identity we feel, perhaps not right, perhaps not real, will link us constantly. I see the rock, the clay, the chalk, the flattened grass, the swaying stalk, and it is you I see. Philip Larkin, of course. Small, definitely, 69 words. Uh, trivial? I don't think so. There's a whole thesis wrapped up in those 69 words. So, small is beautiful, not just in poetry. Small is powerful. Small can change the way your readers see the world, which means changing the world. And some of the most influential writers in the world today are people like newspaper columnists, and professional bloggers, men and women who have the gift of brevity and therefore grabbing your attention. If you want to think of it in more practical terms, small is where the publishing market is going. As attention spans get shorter and shorter, brevity's at a premium, you know? Um, in order to study attention spans, the place to go will be places like Disney World. 
uh, where they constantly adjust their presentations down to the attention spans which they have researched in people. Now it's down to about two and a half minutes, apparently. Um, if it was the second coming and it lasted more than two and a half minutes, people would lose interest, according to the... Uh, so, you know, long stuff is, uh, is getting more and more difficult to sell and accessibility and impact are becoming the important things, which is probably good. And if you think about your own reading experience, uh, I, you probably remember small things out of longer things. For example, years and years ago, I read the whole of Proust's amazing lengthy novel, A La Recherche du Temps Perdu, and I only read it because my wife told me to, I have to say, not, not because I wanted to. And uh, what do I remember of all that? I remember one gorgeous passage, one lengthy sentence of about a page, and pretty much nothing else except a general blurred impression of the outline of the plot. Uh, what do I remember of John Barth's big novels? I admire John Barth a lot. Well, what really sticks in my mind is one famous phrase of his. Self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> and in a way, his, all of his great novels are commentaries on that one single phrase. We remember those things. You know, we remember the small perfect poem or essay or story long after the more inflated writing has faded away. Memory is just not capacious enough. Now, it's very easy, I know I'm going to be misunderstood here, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with big, expansive writing. It can be grand, it can be glorious in the hands of a, a brilliant writer. It's a vital part of the literary landscape, but it's less and less what editors or readers want. It may be that some reviewers and literary critics actually read every word of Tom Wolfe's A Man in Full or Elliot Perlman's Seven Types of Ambiguity. But I kind of doubt that even the reviewers read the whole thing. Um, they're just too much. And <clears throat> although we admire big books, we very seldom get right the way through them. Uh, try this little experiment. When you go on vacation, um, you often feel, a, especially when you're going abroad, a, a terrible pang because you may be cut off from television and even worse from the internet. So what do you do? You go to the bookstore in the airport and you buy a great big book the size of a club sandwich. And you arrive in your hotel or your rented property and you're probably they're going to have a little library there of books that people have left behind. And they're all going to be great big fat books the size of club sandwiches, right? <coughs> Pull them out and look at them attentively. You can very easily see, especially with paperbacks, how far anybody has read. <laughs> it's usually about four or five chapters in, and then the rest of the book is pristine. You know, those books are like psychological security devices in a way, you know, so that you, you feel you will have something to read, but you're not going to read it. Um, and my thesis is that most writers can do better for themselves and their readers by putting more of their effort into writing that's accessible and short. Uh, we all have a lot of words. Are we getting a feedback here? That's better. Um, we all have a lot of words. Words are our cheap currency, as I said. And what we lose in pouring them out in an unrestrained way is uh, are two things, really. We lose focus and we lose readers. 
Uh, a lot of books are published of 80,000 or 100 words, uh, 100,000 words, and when you read them you realise that the writer only had about 800 words worth of things to say. Uh, it's especially true of self-help books. This is, is, you know, we read any self-help book and you'll find at the bottom of it some absolutely trivial sentence like, the way to become happy is focus on small things. Something like that. Well, that was it. That was the whole thing. You didn't need the other 150 pages to know that. And you knew that anyway, right? It's, uh, it's also true of political books. Any political book or book by a politician is 200 times bigger than it needs to be. Now, in the academic world, this is fine because inflating small insights into monsters of pompous verbosity is, is what gets you tenure and promotion. Um, I know because I was a professor for 25 years and that's how I got tenure and promotion. Um, but it doesn't work in the real world. Um, how often have you picked up a literary magazine like Granta, for example, and been daunted by some huge, gigantic, overwhelming essay? picked up one the other day, I think it was in Granta, uh, and the author's point was this, this uh, that Europeans find the religiousness of America incomprehensible and strange. That was the entire point of the essay. It was 5,000 words long, and I ploughed through it because I was kind of waiting for something new. And there wasn't anything new. There were a lot of commonplace observations that anybody who's been in Europe knows already. Um, and it wasn't pretty prose either, so it wasn't worth reading for the prose. Long writing is usually flabby writing. Not always, but usually. It's usually undisciplined. It's usually small thoughts puffed up with many words. And we may love the mountains of words that we create. I certainly love mine, but the tendency is that nobody else loves them. Um, now, it's unfortunate for writers that we live in a culture where big and successful are collated together. And those are the things that count. There's a fa famous quote you, I'm sure you've heard by Jeffrey Cottrell. He says, um, in America, only the successful writer is important. In France, all writers are important. In England, no writer is important. <laughs> in Australia, you have to explain what a writer is. Sorry, Vanessa. <laughs> um, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous, strong cultural link between big and successful. Big books, big sales. It's very, very strong. And it, it, it goes right across the culture. Look at SUVs. Look at houses. Um, where I live on Long Island, you know, the island is, is un, in danger of sinking under the Atlantic, under the weight of gigantic houses and gigantic SUVs. Um, but be no real loss, I don't think, if it did. But um, uh, in fact, SUVs are a pretty good metaphor of what I'm talking about. They're too big for the job. They're designed to impress and intimidate, um, and they're not necessary. So I'm looking really more towards the Prius kind of writing, the sort of low, low pollution writing um, at the other end of the literary scale, because it's more accessible to the reader and it's uh, more accessible to the writer too. The charming thing about writing short pieces is that you can start at breakfast and be done in time for lunch, which never happens with a novel. 
At the extreme end, of course, you find the uh, very short fiction, the uh, short shorts, as they call them, or flash fiction or nano fiction. I've heard that phrase, too. Um, Hemingway once wrote a, a short story that he claimed was his best thing, although I'm sure it was tongue-in-cheek. It went like that. It, was, it went like this. It was six words. Um, For sale, baby shoes never worn. It's another one from a science fiction writer, a little space odyssey piece, uh, a science fiction writer called Eileen Gunn. Computer? Did we bring the spare batteries? Computer? <laughs> End of story. <laughs> <laughs> they leave everything to the imagination, you know, but they're little stories in themselves. Now, you know, it's it's hard to put yourself on a, on a word diet like any other kind of diet. There's this wild animal inside us that screams out, you know, prestige, big money, bestseller list, etc., etc. And that's the voice for most writers, I think, of chronic insecurity. Um, now, if your inner voice is not the voice of insecurity, as it is with me, but the voice of true manic ambition, um, then you're going to go ahead and think big no matter what. Nothing is going to stop you. And you're certainly not going to be wasting your time in this room. Um, but a lot of writers only think they have to think big because that's in the culture. And they might be more satisfied and more successful thinking small. You know, thinking about what counts as success for you is time well spent. You know, what's a success for you? It saves a lot of time to think about this. Um, maybe a single perfect book, absolutely perfect, but that was never published. Um, a book that sold 99 copies, half a dozen poems that said exactly what you wanted to say and no more. Or would it be the admiration of the art literary establishment or the admiration of your mother? Moment of glory on Oprah. You know, what is it really that we're heading for here? And uh, Again, to quote a, a cliche from the self-help books, success is just like happiness. It's one of those interior things. And uh, I read a very nice piece. You may have seen it too in the New York Times book review a while ago, an article by Bruce McCall. Uh, it was an essay at the back of the book review. And it tells the story of McCall's friend, John Jerome, who wrote 11 books and never had a bestseller or even a decent seller of any kind. And critics ignored him, the editors insulted him, the agents dismissed his work as boring, but John Jerome just kept on doing what he wanted to do. And the article ends with these words, quote, John Jerome, hands down, was the most successful writer I've ever known, unquote. Successful because he did exactly what he wanted to do. And all of us, in this room, I imagine that's what we want, right? We want to do something uh, that pleases us, something we can make a life out of, that's personally satisfying. And uh, that's going to be different for everybody, obviously. This is where character and ambition and luck come into the equation. If you're driven to succeed and your metier turns out to be writing long, brilliantly inventive novels for children full of mystery and magic, well, you may turn out to be another A.K. Rowling. If you like a quiet life 
and your real gift is to write exquisite short poems about cats, well, you're going to need a second job. <laughs> and probably a third job to cover the cat food as well. Um, books are especially tough for writers these days, as you all know. Um, statistics I know are always unwelcome, but I came upon a very interesting one the other day um, from statistics from 2006, tracked by Nielsen Bookscan. Uh, they tracked um, 1,000, sorry, 1,446,000,000 titles sold in America in 2006. Um, the number of these titles that sold fewer than 99 copies was 1,123,000. If you do the arithmetic, 92% of all books sold fewer than 99 copies in 2006 including, I have to say, two of mine, um, one of which sold about 12 copies. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's a lottery with the odds a little bit, a lot against you, rather like the state lottery. Major writers in terms of sales are a small group. They're getting smaller. You've got your Wolves, you've got your Baths, Barnes, Rushdies, and so on. And they're still popular. Um, but even the fattest books by the most major writers come and go very, very quickly. Uh, Calvin Trillin said that uh, the shelf life of a book these days is somewhere between milk and yogurt. Um, they just don't stay out there very long. Now again, um, I don't want to give the wrong impression. You know, books are wonderful, books are magic. Uh, when I arrive in Iowa City, Prairie Lights is the first place I head for. They're great to read and great to write, and it's great for writers to have books in their agenda. Uh, you should always have a novel going, for example. I call it the perpetual novel. It's a kind of security blanket. Um, I have two of them. I've been writing for 25 years or so. Uh, neither one has got beyond the first chapter, but it doesn't matter. Um, you can always say, if all else fails, I'm working on my novel. Um, <laughs> That's, that's important to have, um, but it shouldn't be the only thing because that's a way to set yourself up for the possibility, even the probability of commercial disaster. I suppose I, I shouldn't knock failure, really, um, because it's never as bad as it sounds. Um, failure is actually educational. Whenever in my teaching days I used to give some unfortunate student an F grade and they would come and complain to me as students do these days. And once upon a time they accepted it, now they come and complain. Um, I would always say, you know, this is, you're going to learn more from this F grade than you would ever learn from an A grade. You've learned that here is something that you absolutely cannot do. <laughs> and should just give up right here, you know, just forget about it and do something else because otherwise you're wasting your time. Um, if you're really bad at anything, um, as I am, for example, at sports, um, you achieve a kind of transcendence. Um, you may even achieve a kind of celebrity. Uh, for example, it's wi widely acknowledged the world's worst poet uh, was a Scotsman called uh, William Topaz McGonagall. You may have seen his poems. Uh, it's so bad that it verges on genius. Um, there are still half a dozen books of his verse in print. It's dreadful. It's awful. Um, and his name is famous all over the world. Um, 
There's an Australian called William Gold I read about who achieved a kind of notoriety through failure. He wrote his whole life, he had a long life, he wrote uh, at least three million words. His total earnings from the entire career added up to 75 cents, uh, which he got from a paragraph in a newspaper. So failure can be interesting in itself, you know, you can make a career out of it, you can make a celebrity out of it. Uh, also, of course, it can be just the anteroom to success. You have to just take care not to wait too long before moving on from the anteroom to the real thing. Uh, Norman Mailer claims to have written a million words before he ever published a single one. He was rejected over and over again. Uh, others, well-known like Walt Whitman, had to publish their own books uh, in the beginning. Others like Henry James, Herman Melville, actually a good reason for Henry James, but never mind, um, George Orwell, people like this were absolutely racked with doubt about their own work. They had no confidence. Uh, George Orwell wrote about his next novel, it's bound to be a failure. Every book of mine is a failure. Uh, the book came out, it was a short book, it was 1984. So writers are I always live in a certain degree of obscurity and uncertainty. That's the writer's natural condition. And the, the challenge is to keep going even when um, nothing great or even trivial seems to be coming out of it. You know, there's a certain uh, sheer persistence has its place, can carry you from failure to success. And maybe cockeyed optimism has its place too. But it's important to persist in the right direction, that's my point. The one that has the best chance of producing the reward that all writers really want, namely readers. Actually, some, some writers don't just want readers, they want to be famous. It's that wonderful pull of celebrity as well. And uh, that's an interesting issue. I don't want to go off too much at a tangent, but that's an interesting issue in itself. Um, Tony Curtis said about fame, that it's like having Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you don't know anybody, but they all know you. And that's a, that's a thing that appeals to a lot of people. And people expect a writer to be a bit of a celebrity. You know, if they come across a writer and he or she turns out to be just a regular human being, they're a little bit disappointed. And they think, well, you're not a real writer, are you? If you're a real writer, you would have a sort of glow around you, some kind of halo of uh, celebrity. Now, that's interesting. I mean, uh, you, you may well ask, is this, is this person, David Boucher, a celebrity? Um, and the answer is, yes, I am, but only in an area of about 1,000 square miles, um, a lot of which is ocean. And... Um, <laughs> And that's because I've been on the radio and doing newspaper columns for years and years and years in this area, and a lot of people know my name. Uh, and it's a very, very curious experience. Now, that kind, of, that kind of celebrity, local celebrity, which you can escape just by walking out of your area, um, is, is, is really quite interesting and attractive. Um, Fran Lebowitz once said that the, the best kind of fame is the sort that gets you the best table in the restaurant, but doesn't get you interrupted while you're eating. And that's the kind I'm talking about. And that's available to a lot of writers. You know, if you can be a local celebrity through your writings, through newspapers, through radio, through promoting your books locally, um, that's a lot of fun. It's a tremendous amount of fun. And it's not the kind of horror that real national fame would be. 
On the other hand, of course, if you get real national fame for any reason, you immediately have a wonderful platform for selling your books. So it's a question of your personality and your temperament. How much fame can you, can you actually stand? Um, but that's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a tangent, I'm afraid. Um, talking about brevity, I shouldn't do any tangents. <clears throat> OK, let's consider the, the pleasure and the perverse uh, challenge of working on the modest scale. Um, if you look up brevity in the thesaurus, you find a nice list of words. Uh, here's some of them. Concise, sparing of words, succinct, brief, not long in telling, crisp, brisk, to the point, trenchant, incisive, condensed, tight-knit, compact, pithy, neat. All of them good words. All of them good things for a writer to be. Um, in other words, Henry James is not really the best model for writing in the 21st century. And to become all of those desirable things, uh, there's, really a, there's really only one way to do it. It's something you have to painfully do to yourself. In other words, it's all about editing, to state the obvious. Um, I'm fortunate in that I started off my writing life as a journalist, a newspaper journalist, where uh, length is of critical importance and uh, editors are, at least were, totally ruthless and demanding exact word lengths. Um, and I spend a lot of time in radio which is even worse, because radio is all about time. It's all about numbers. If you have to produce a speech, a talk, which is three minutes and 45 seconds long, it has to be three minutes and 45 seconds, not three minutes and 50, or three minutes and 42, uh, because that's going to mess up the, the order of the programming completely. Um, and that is a, a wonderful training for a writer just in getting rid of the unnecessary. If you've ever had to do anything like that, you know that you've got your piece of writing, and I believe very much in writing long and cutting ferociously. Um, if I'm going to write 600 words, I may write 3,000, and then come down to 600. Um, because somewhere in that 3,000, there's got to be something good, right? It's hiding in there. Um, but um, it's a wonderful, wonderful training to, to have to to achieve that degree of concision and you know you can always cut no matter how perfect your piece seems and how exactly right every word appears to be you can always take it out as uh, George Orwell's old advice if you can cut then cut and uh, there's almost no limit to doing this uh, you can keep on at it like peeling an onion until the thing disappears entirely but um, what you want is the correct length, the right length for the market you're looking at. Um, another thing I've experienced, which has been a, a good training, is writing breaks for a music program, uh, which I run on Sundays, a uh, classical music program. Every break has to be around 60 seconds long. And in that break, I have to get maybe a little bit of biography, maybe a little bit of music criticism, maybe a little anecdote. Um, and uh, listeners really enjoy those. They love those little 60-second breaks, but if they go on longer than 60 seconds, they begin to get itchy. When's the music coming back? So that's an interesting training too. So writing short things is, you know, is, is a challenge, and uh, it's interesting in itself. Uh, obviously, I don't mean 
when I say writing short, I don't mean writing little. Um, if you don't write very much, if you write an essay and then three months later you write another essay, that guarantees your total obscurity. Um, because if you're writing short pieces, productivity is the, is the uh, key to success. You need to write a lot, but keep it brief. As I said, the, uh, the trick is to write long and cut hard, and I can't resist uh, quoting Pascal here, um, who when sending a letter to a friend said, I'm really sorry this letter is longer than usual, but I didn't have the time to make it short. <laughs> and it's so true, it takes longer to make it short. Okay. Um, there's a story that I read in the uh, spring issue of Granta magazine, uh, quoted by Robert Lennon, J. Robert Lennon, uh, who tells the story of an author who wrote a huge, sprawling, thousand-page saga about her hometown. Great big, massive novel. And, of course, she can't sell it because it's far too big. Everyone says she must cut it, so she cuts it, she cuts it. She brings it all the way down to... Uh, 75,000 words, 80,000 words, a normal size of book. No, no good. Multiple rejections. Uh, she cuts it, she cuts it, she makes it into a short novel. No good. Uh, she cuts it down to a short story. Um, and then to a poem. And finally to a haiku. Um, and the haiku says, tiny upstate town undergoes many changes nevertheless endures. <laughs> and nobody would publish the haiku either. Um, point, point being that brevity doesn't solve all problems. Um, it doesn't solve the problem of triviality, for example. You know, if you have nothing to say, it's best not to say it at all. Um, the great thing about brevity is you do have something to say. It's wonderfully easy. Um, <coughs> now, um, to anticipate a question that I can see coming up later, um, there are plenty of situations where, where brevity is just impossible and ridiculous, like those five-minute productions of Hamlet. Um, anything, contains, anything that contains a lot of facts has to be long enough to contain those facts clearly. Anything that unfolds, uh, unfolds a complex argument or a series of complex arguments has to be as long as it needs to be to do that. Um, but it's rather rare, really, to find anything that is actually long, complex enough and original enough to need the long treatment. Uh, I came upon, upon something the other day, and it was a real surprise. Harper's Magazine, this month, August 2007. Um, there's an essay by Benjamin D. Mott called Battling the Hard Man. And it's just a wonderful piece about the pornography of violence, which is a... Uh, a common enough theme, but what it's really about is about his own discovery that watching television programs night after night of explosions and death and destruction um, all around the world, he actually begins to like it. He actually begins to say, give me some more of that stuff, inwardly. Um, just as people love TV ads that involve car crashes, just as people love movies that involve insane violence and lots of it, you know, most of the movies produced nowadays, in fact. Um, and he writes about this discovery of this horrible thing within himself uh, in the most uh, 
poignant and revealing way that I've seen in a long time in an essayist. Uh, just as a, uh, an additional fact, the author was actually, so the editor tells us, was dying at the time he wrote this. But he doesn't mention that. He doesn't think that's interesting. What's interesting is what he's discovered about himself in thinking about this violence. Now that is an essay that needed to be long. And it was, about 6,000 words, I would estimate. Um, you can look it up in Harper's uh, this month. <clears throat> the opposite extreme, uh, another way to be a, a better and briefer writer is just not to take yourself too seriously. There is something about taking yourself seriously that multiplies words. I don't know what it is. Um, the, I suppose the quintessential character here is Polonius um, in Hamlet, who uh, declares that brevity is the soul of wit, and then goes on to talk endlessly in a very, very boring fashion. Um, verbosity and pomposity often go hand in hand. So if you can bring a bit of humor to your writing, almost always you find that you're writing in a more pithy way, because humor only works if it's short. Lengthy, verbose humor just doesn't work at all. And it's quite hard to do. You know, when we, when we start writing, uh, it's always easier to write about the gloomy stuff, the depressing stuff. That's what people love to write about. Uh, humor takes a bit of work, and it immediately makes your writing more attractive, more accessible. Um, Again, a quote, this one from the great American humorist S.J. Perlman, writing in the Paris Review. And he's responding to the question, have you ever considered writing a serious book? A question a lot of us have heard. My response to that is I've written a lot of serious books, just nobody has recognized them as serious books. Um, he says, quote, it may surprise you to hear me say that I regard my comic writing as serious. For the past 34 years, I've been approached almost hourly by damp people with foreheads like Rocky Ford melons who urge me to knock off my frivolous career and get started on the novel I'm burning to write. I have no earthly intention of doing any such thing. I don't believe in the importance of scale. To me, the muralist is no more important than the miniature painter. In this very large country where size is everything and where Tom Wolfe outranks Robert Benchley, I am, I am content to stitch away at my embroidery hoop. I think the form I work in can have its own special distinction. S.J. Perlman, unquote. Um, it's true that humorists get no respect, um, but it's a brilliant way of putting over serious ideas and it certainly brings you a lot more readers. So, Here's what I suggest. Um, if you haven't done it before, experiment with very small-scale writing in which every word counts. Uh, very best writing you can manage. You have to convince yourself that small is not the same as trivial or minor. Um, the main thing is not to be a, a, a writer of this or that scale, but to be a writer, obviously. And get your writing out there into the marketplace at all costs in any way you can think of, through newspapers and magazines, um, self-publishing if you like, radio, podcasts, the internet. There are thousands of ways to get your writing out there in some shape or form. And the smaller it is, the, the shorter it is, the e easier it will be. I mean, personally, if I write something, I want people to read it or to hear it because I'm lazy. I don't want to write things for nothing. That's what I'm doing right now, I guess. Um, 
And if you don't have a huge reputation, you can, be, you can take more risks than a big name writer. Um, and you can also you know, hope to change people a little bit, uh, one person at a time. I'm thinking of Karl Marx, actually, father of modern communism, who was essentially just a journalist and a pamphleteer. And he said, um, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. And uh, he changed it, of course, not necessarily for the better, with a little pamphlet called the Communist Manifesto. History of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles. What a pamphlet. And uh, the only thing I can think of with comparable Im impact is uh, Tom Paine's Common Sense, that pamphlet. We haven't recovered from that one yet either. Um, you know, writers, I think most writers have an interest in uh, not just being out there and being recognized, but also being powerful in some way. Uh, again, uh, Norman Mailer in that book, The Spooky Art, uh, said this, people don't become authors solely to benefit humanity. They're in the same position of, as priests. Part of them wants to be good to others. The other side wants one way or another to have some acquaintance with power. And I think that's true. You know, the most powerful writers are the writers for the big newspapers and television networks, of course. But the rest of us, the other 99% of the iceberg below the water, still can make a difference by, by presenting entertainment with a message and uh, influencing a few individuals. Nothing makes me happier when I get emails saying, oh, you know, I never thought of it that way, or uh, you've put something in a new light for me. That's just the reward um, that I want. And I collect all of those messages, and I put them in a file, which is very egotistical, and save them up, and I'll read them in my old age if I remember to do that. So in short, um, I'm suggesting uh, <laughs> to take more seriously all of this trivial small stuff, get over the SUV mentality in our writing, and uh, find a place to put the writing that people love to uh, remember because it's simple, stylish, and short. That's something worth trying. And I've said far too much, so I'm going to stop and see if there are any questions. Do the questions uh, go on to the podcast, Carol? Yes, they do. Okay, so I'll repeat the questions. Uh, for the benefit of the podcast. Yes. Well, you could always read mine. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Um, not, not in particular. I mean, the 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 problems with collections of of essays in books, uh, like the uh, best American essay series, you know, every year to year is that the editors tend to favor very long essays. Um, and that's really not what I'm talking about. It's, it's really quite hard to publish short essays in book form because editors consider them somehow intrinsically uh, unworthy. You know, if you haven't splurged out 5,000 words, it can't mean anything. Um, but I think, you know, that, that uh, short pieces, you know, are, are worth, uh, worth reading. So, so then a magazine that I'm sorry? Oh, 
Oh yes, a lot of them. A lot of them do. A lot of consumer magazines carry short essays. Uh, Newsweek, I think, carries one still at the beginning. Uh, newspapers on the op-ed pages. Uh, there, there are a lot of them around. It's just that they're almost never called essays. They're always called something else, like commentaries and you know opinion pieces and that kind of thing. But there's lots of it out there. It's the sort of thing you actually do read when you read a magazine. It's distinct from the thing you skip over because it's too long. Must be another question. <laughs> you have a great sense of humor, and I think you mm. innately see the humor in situations. Um, but with something that's really serious and depressing, how do you fit that piece of humor in there? Well, there is humor in almost every situation, you know, if you can find it. Um, uh, there's a book by P.J. O'Rourke uh, called All the Trouble in the World and uh, it's a collection of, of uh, humor pieces about all the things you would least expect to be written about, you know, uh, global warming, uh, cancer, death, uh, war, you know, you name it. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke has written a humor piece about it and they're actually very funny, believe it or not. I mean, the, the, the thing to to find, I think, in humor is that, that there's always a, an angle which is the human angle. It's not necessarily that the whole situation, it's not necessarily the context, the human angle is funny. How people respond to things, how they deal with things. Um, a good example for a novel, um, the famous uh, Joseph Heller book, Catch-22, uh, which is about the catastrophic you know, end game of the Second World War in uh, in uh, Italy, or for that matter, Kurt Vonnegut's, uh, which one am I trying to remember? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, you know, th those sorts of books are, are full of humor, but they're also very dark. Uh, but aside from the, you know, the really bad things, um, which in Iowa there's not many of, really. Um, maybe in Afghanistan is another matter, but Iowa, no. Um, you know, m most things in everyday life, people's lives and families and habits and prejudices and uh, ways of going about things are, are almost always funny if you look at them in the same way. And the way to look is as if you've just been dropped on this planet by accident. Um, if you are an alien, I guess I'm one of them, um, uh, and you really don't understand what's going on. Why, why are people doing this? It's the same uh, mentality that you have when you travel abroad and you're suddenly thrown into a different culture. Everything is illuminated, everything is brighter and sharper and uh, more interesting than it is at home where it's so familiar. So really that's what the humorist, not the writer in general, not just the humorist, that's what we're looking for, is that, that extra perception. Okay, I mean to take the second one first, the uh, uh, the statistics unfortunately didn't divide them up in, into into categories. Um, I would think a lot of the books that sold less than 99 copies were mid-list books, you know, the dreaded mid-list where a lot of things tend to fall after 
two or three months, but the statistics didn't tell us. A lot of them might have been uh, reprints and older books, but still it's a, it's a startling statistic. Um, the other question was, uh, have you ever written, uh, cut out things and then put them back again? The answer, unfortunately, is yes. Um, uh, I've often cut out things for, say, a radio broadcast to get to length, and then I've been so much in love with the words that I cut out that I put them back again when I wanted to print them in another context or put them on the web or something like that. It almost always turns out to be a mistake in retrospect. You know, with 2020 hindsight, you go back to these things and think, no, I should have cut that out. It was right to cut it out, but I couldn't bear it, so I put it back in. Uh, so it's always an inner struggle. It's always an inner struggle. Um, and uh, one way, I suppose, to, to make it uh, not less painful, but at least more meaningful, is to think all the time about the reader. Does the reader really want to know this? Does the really reader really need that extra phrase or sentence or paragraph of description or emotion or whatever? Does it, does it carry the reader forward? And if the answer is no, not particularly, um, then much as you love it, clever though it is, you know, it can go. <clears throat> yes. Uh, strategy, well, I mean, there's the, the usual editing strategies, which is um, the beginning of the end of the piece, and the end of a piece are usually redundant because we, we sort of warm up for a paragraph or two, and then when we're finished, we wind down for a paragraph or two, so we can usually take those right out and uh, leave the core of the thing in the middle. Um, but um, no, not really. I'm usually trying to see... Uh, if I can, from the reader's point of view, you know, how this is going to work. And if I were reading it, where would I skip? Um, and sometimes it's quite easy to see where you yourself would skip, where this is getting boring. There's too much description, there's too much factual detail. Let's get over it. Um, and then cut there. Um, and apart from that, I have no special technique. I just work on whatever, whatever part of the manuscript the cat is not sitting on at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Question is, what kind of word length are we talking about for radio and uh, general essays? I mean, for for radio, typical length is around six hundred words, which is around three minutes and forty-five seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, some radio commentators uh, get longer. Uh, they get maybe as much as uh, 800 words, 850 words. It seldom goes much above that. Uh, for newspaper and magazines, uh, for newspapers especially, it's between five and five and 750 words, generally speaking. Uh, it's getting shorter all the time. Uh, if you look at USA Today, you'll see they have almost nothing longer than 500 words, no matter how big it is. You know, there's, there's almost no story longer than 500. And uh, if you look at typical newspaper op-eds, except for the most prestigious columnists, um, it's usually six, 700 words, something like that. Uh, magazines will often run to 1,000 uh, for, for a short piece. Again, not much longer than that. Articles are a whole other matter. Yeah. Mm. Do they ever 
Well, um, it's a bit outside our subject, but the question is about submitting material to um, uh, to newspapers and magazines. Uh, I'm sorry. Or NPR or whatever. Um, it, it's very straightforward, really. I mean, the newspapers, <coughs> magazines and so on are always looking for stuff. That's the first thing. They're publishing year-round newspapers, 365 days a year, NPR 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They need a lot of stuff. You know, they, they need a lot of stuff. Uh, and they're always looking for good things. So if you send them uh, material which really takes the editor's fancy... Uh, they will probably be interested in you. With newspapers, I've found the, and magazines, the, the thing to do is to bombard them with material. They'll reject you first time, for sure, because that's what editors do. There's no fun being an editor unless you can reject people, right? It's uh, uh, half the pleasure. Um, but, uh, and they'll, they'll reject you the second time, probably. But if you keep sending them stuff, um, they will begin to think they know you. Um, um, I swear, I swear this works. It, it, it's, it's a psychological trick. Um, and uh, if you keep sending them good things, also the second thing they'll learn is that you've got staying power. You know, you've, you've got productive power. You can't just do one shot about, you know, how you always get the three-wheeled supermarket trolley and that's it. That's your whole, that's your whole oeuvre, you know, blown right there. Um, you, uh, you, you have to keep at them with different stuff, different stuff, different stuff. And, you know, editors find it really hard to, to find people who can do that. It's not a common thing. People can write two or three pieces and then they're, they're out. They're out of steam. So keep sending. For NPR, um, you start with your local station, whatever that is, and um, find out if they have a guest. They often have a guest commentary slot somewhere in the daily rotation. Um, on the web page, they often will give you information on that. And um, if they do, or even if they don't, um, write two or three pieces to the right length, three minutes, four minutes, um, record them, borrow or hire a professional recording studio because a professional record recording studio can make uh, George W. Bush sound like Abraham Lincoln. You know, it can really, can really improve your uh, delivery and sound and uh, then package up your scripts and your recording, send it to the uh, program director and uh, wait and give them a little reminder after a bit because they're very busy. <laughs> do, you, do you send when you bombard? Do you send a lot of things all at once or do you send every day something? For no, over a period of time, maybe one, one a week, something like that. Yeah, just keep them, keep them coming, keep them coming. <clears throat> Anything else? Okay, well, thank you very much all for coming. Enjoy the rest of the conference. <laughs>